Welcome to the April 2006 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling and Peter Jones, and we are three ordinary men calling you back to the ordinary means of grace, God's ordinary means of grace. Well, today what we want to talk about is the use of the Bible in the worship service. How should the Bible be read? Uh, where should the Bible be read? What should the uh, effect of the Scripture be upon and our understanding of the Scriptures be upon the actual worship service uh, where those ordinary means, God's Word, sacraments, and prayer are located? Uh, we're going to get to that here in just a minute. And then at the uh, end of our time today, we want to spend... Uh, a little bit of this time talking about the Gospel of Judas and the effect that it's going to have with its release as it relates to the uh, Da Vinci Code movie and as it relates to just this sudden revelation that there's another gospel floating out there. How are we to uh, address this? How are we to understand this? Uh, so we hope to answer some of those questions briefly today. Uh, but first off, uh, we want to start with God's Word. That's always where we should begin. And so the question we're going to start off with this morning is, why should the Bible be read in the worship service? Uh, it seems like a, a fairly easy question to answer, and yet uh, for many there are churches who have decided we don't need to read the Bible in our service. You know, we've, we've got our prayers and we have our uh, various uh, liturgical things that we do, and maybe if we can get to it, we'll, we'll stick a little scripture in there at the back end. Uh, but as uh, I think all everyone here at the table agrees, uh, the Word of God is central to all that we do. Guys, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I think you're right on. I think that's it's absolutely central to what we do. If we're not doing the, if we're not bringing the word to people, what are we, what are we bringing them? It's kind of what are we going to get back to? What's why? Why do people gather in church? Well, we gather to give God worship, and we gather because He wants to transform us. That's what the ordinary means is about. It's the way that God transforms us. And the, and the Word of God is transforming. Hebrews four twelve says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I don't know anything else that can make those kinds of promises. <laughs> no doubt. And we go to meet with God. We don't go to meet with the pastor. And the way we meet you, with you God... You don't come to church to meet with me. <laughs> Sean's crestfallen over here but he'll get over <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go i'm gonna go in the corner and cry for just a minute <laughs> it i think people um the problem is people do come to hear the pastor and then they're really disappointed when they hear god instead and <laughs> that can be kind of unsettling uh, but that's the point the scriptures are where god speaks to us and that's where he brings his word his living word to bear upon our sins bear upon our lives bear upon what we do and if we cut that out of the service and uh, many evangelical churches do have very little reading of the scriptures in their service um, even with a sermon there's not a lot of text involved even with the sermon the official sermon part of it so if you're coming to meet with god you got to have god's word there and if you don't have god's word you're not meeting with god you're and just meeting with some guy up there who's got some opinion about this or that yeah, if god's word isn't there god isn't talking that's right the, uh, it's interesting, I was just reflecting on when I used to live in San Diego, I worked for a company and uh, the owner of the company really wanted me to come and hear his minister sometime because he really, you know, his minister told great stories and just thought his minister was just really, really engaging. And it was evident uh, in working for the guy that his life was not being transformed by the word. And I think there's a real danger in that we're, as pastors, called to... Um, to do our job well, to, to make our sermons memorable and helpful um, and uh, apply them well to people, make them culturally relevant, meet people where they are, but bring them along. Uh, but as Peter's already said, it's not that people would walk away and go, wow, what a great pastor, but to walk away and say, wow, what a great God. What a sweet gospel. Amen. Amen. And isn't that the import of the Corinthians passage where it talks about them fall, the unbeliever falling down? Hmm. It wasn't, they didn't say, oh, wow, what a great preacher's there. They said, oh, God is there. God is in the midst of that. Hmm. And therefore their secrets were exposed. They were opened up, just like you read in that Hebrews passage. You know, if you go on, um, you know, we're naked and bare before God. And one way he does that certainly is with the word. And so to leave that out is to leave ourselves, to keep our hearts in a state of hardness. Think. Well, it's, 
Second Timothy uh, sixteen seventeen verses we're all familiar with. Three, three, uh, sixteen. Three. I'm sorry. Three, sixteen and seventeen says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Just two things there. One, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. Is is literally what it reads there. Uh, this is the word of God. This is what God is saying to us. And when God's word comes to bear upon us, uh, that word does not return void. Uh, it, it does its work. Uh, so that the verse 17, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I think, too, that if, if it, Peter alluded to this a little bit earlier, but if people are coming, hopefully our people are coming to hear God, not us. But how are they going to hear God unless they hear the word? The Westminster Directory for Worship puts it this way. It says the public reading of the Holy Scriptures. This is um, a public uh, section called the public reading of the Holy Scriptures in the Directory for Worship. It says the public reading of the Holy Scriptures is performed by the minister as God's servant. Through it, God speaks most directly to the congregation, even more directly than through the sermon. Mm. And I wonder if in our desire to be relevant, maybe to be sensitive to people, uh, we want to blunt the edge a little bit. We don't want, where does it sound, to go, for God to speak directly to people. We want to kind of soften it a little bit, nicen it up. Uh, we've recently been reading in um, our family worship in Judges. And when you read some of Judges out loud to your kids, it's just so very <laughs> striking. <laughs> how wicked the Israelites were and how um, God judged them and how they had to cry out desperately, and that's God's word. It shows us what our hearts are like, and that we're as desperate and worthy of judgment as the Israelites were under the judges. And we as much need a redeemer far greater than Samson who could tear down a temple. We need one who can rebuild a temple that's himself, and he's making one of us. Also, you have in uh, Timothy there, First Timothy 4.13, you have give attention to the public reading. So if you're looking for a specific command... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's written to Timothy, um, specifically telling him, Paul's telling him, give attention to the reading, to the public reading of the scriptures. And then in Luke, you also have Jesus uh, reading from the synagogue, common practice uh, that the synagogue, that the scriptures were read in the synagogue. And so reading of the scripture is required by scripture, not just by the nature of who God is, the nature of the word, but there are specific requirements, uh, regulations laid down. Well, we asked, the, the question we're answering right now it was asked in a very specific way. We, we said, why should the Bible be read in a worship service? And, and what you've said, Peter, gets back to that, is that the Scripture called for the Word of God to be read. And the reason was, people didn't have Bibles. Right. Uh, we, we tend to forget that. We live in a, in a post-printing press era. We live post-Luther, post uh uh, printing press, and so we take for granted the fact that we all have Bibles. Whereas prior to uh, what, what would that be? Uh, three late fourteen hundreds. Late fourteen hundreds. There were no Bibles. Uh, the Word of God was written in such a way so it could be read. I, I think of you go to some of the genealogies. You go back to some of those longer passages, and you know books like Leviticus, the ones we skim over when we're doing our read through the Bible devotions, uh, and you say, why is that repeated so many times? You come to that all the time, you say, why is that being repeated? He just said that a chapter ago. Well, if, if we take a step back and we say, how would a person without a Bible hear this? They need that repetition. You know, it's the same reason when a, when a pastor is being taught how to give a sermon, they're told you need to repeat your points so that people get it. Uh, the Word of God itself does that. Uh, historically, um, it was written to be heard. And if you wanted to hear the Word of God, uh, you had to come on Sunday. I think that part of the reason that's fallen out for us in services is that it's something that is uh, challenging uh, to sit under. We're very much a, an entertained culture. We're very much used to... I, I recently... Um, uh, watched a special on the Gospel of Judas with my wife, uh, and there were sections of it where I just had to close my eyes, not because what I was seeing was too graphic or there was nudity or something like that, but I, my eyes just couldn't keep up with it. I mm. literally, it hurt my eyes to try and keep up with how fast it's moving because I don't, I don't watch necessarily a lot of TV. 
But that's the people in our congregation. They're used to information and images coming at them very, very quickly. They're used to being pulled into something where the public reading of Scripture uh, requires so much of you. You can't do it passively. You've got to gear your mind towards it. And yet it's for people's benefit. You, you talked about reading your kids the book of Judges earlier. Uh, what you're saying reminds me of uh, something that was a focus on the family. It was years ago, but I've never forgotten it. Uh, is they had a pastor on, and they asked this pastor, you know, how do you, how do you train your kids to sit through a sermon? And he says, well, you know, we don't do a lot of TV. But he said the other thing we do is they listen to a lot of stories on tape. What a wonderful, we've done that with our kids, and what a wonderful way of training your kids not to be fed all the, you know, the images, what is it, every 2.3 seconds or something that's the right. average length of time that an image remains on the television screen. Uh, instead of that, you're training them to hear. You're training them to listen and to, and to and, meld those thoughts over in their mind. And to correlate and to form a mental picture, um, which the scripture is constantly trying to do for us. I've just I've been listening to the Bible on tape in my car because I have a tape player, and it's very different. And that's all you have in your car. That's all I have in my car. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have an eight-track player. I haven't installed that yet, though. <laughs> but uh, I um, <laughs> listening to it, you just you understand how different it is to hear it than it is to read it. And there's rhythms. And I think of the passage in Genesis there where it's talking about and. And this guy had this son, and he lived so many years, Genesis, what is it, four or five, somewhere in that range, and he died. And that rhythm, the rhythm to a lot of the scripture that is missed, especially a lot of the poetry sections, is easily missed if you read silently. Now you can read out loud and catch some of that, but the rhythm is, is interesting, especially in the Hebrew sections, as, as the Hebrews were more poets than maybe the Greeks were, uh, as far as the writing goes there. But it does, if you just listen to it, you understand how vastly different that is from simply reading it silently on a page. Oh, yeah. The Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 1, has a wonderful statement of why the Bible needs to be read in our services. And you know what? The um, Westminster Divines, I don't know if you guys realize this, but the Westminster Divines refer to our podcast in chapter 1. It's, I, no. Rick Warren doesn't even have this kind of product placement that we have <laughs> here at Ordinary Means. Listen to this. This is uh, section 7 of chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Okay, so they start out making, uh, making that statement, admitting that some Scriptures are hard to understand. Uh, they're nor are they alike clear unto all people. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use, here it is, due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. If we want to understand God, the things that must be known, the things that must be believed, the things that must be observed for our salvation, then it's found in attending to the word through the ordinary means of grace. It's just absolutely central. Absolutely. I don't think we can get, we shouldn't even try and get around it, it depending on what we want. I mean, if you want to, uh, it's one of my friends in my congregation uh, likes to put it, he says, it's, it's easy to gather a crowd. Anybody can do that. But I think that if we're reading the scriptures and we're preaching uh, a biblical gospel, we're preaching an authentic gospel, not a synthetic one, but an authentic one, um, and people are exposed to the fullness of who God is and the fullness of what life on our fallen earth and what salvation's about and the call to discipleship, you have to do that with the scriptures. We were recently with a, a pastoral friend of ours at a conference, and he was lamenting the fact that although he'd been in a pastoral call for 15 years, he'd only preached 20 books of the Bible so far. And um, that he really wanted his congregation in his time as a pastor to have the full range of scripture to them, which is why he started reading uh, some years back um, larger sections of scripture besides just what he was preaching, because he wanted to feel like he had he wanted to stand before the Lord and say the congregation that you gave me charge of, they have experienced the entire Bible under my ministry. And I think that. Um, that's a real question that, that we as leaders in Christ's church, as elders in his church, need to ask. Do we want our people to experience the entirety of the scriptures? If we do, 
then we ought to read it and we ought to preach it. One problem, one faulty assumption is that we assume that the people in the pew are actually reading God's word. That's one faulty assumption. And we, uh, as your pastor friend uh, Matt said, that that's a wrong assumption to make. There's a lot of people in the pews that aren't reading the word, aren't being exposed to it, even if they are. A lot of times, people have their pet books that they read, their pet sections that they read, and they're never exposed to Leviticus, Ezekiel, Haggai, you know? They're never exposed to First and Second Chronicles. So uh, because of that, I think it's absolutely essential to read the Word and read a variety of portions of the Word, not just sticking to, you know, Ephesians and the Psalms. Well, those obviously need to be read, but it needs to be broader than that because the people in the pew, a lot of times, are not going to pick up their Bible and say, well, you know what? I'm really excited about reading Ezekiel today. I'm looking forward to the wheels and the eyes and the chariots. You know, that's going to be a lot of fun. So variety can be accomplished in a worship service that a lot of people won't self-impose upon themselves. Yeah. Well, this is, you guys know, this is one of my soapboxes is the, the long pastorate. And I, I just think that the church, you know, as a church, we're in the business of making disciples. Yeah, that's the Great Commission in Matthew 28. That's sort of where we began this whole thing, talking about the ordinary means, uh, however many months ago that was. Uh, that if we're in the business of making disciples, we've got to have the way that God make, makes disciples, which is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, thus his word, central to what we're going to do. That that takes a lot of scripture, and that takes a lot of scripture over time. And that's filling each and every service with scripture. We're going to talk about that a little bit more here in just a minute. In fact, let's, uh, let's move on to that. Uh, the next question we wanted to ask was, well, if, if scripture is central, how much of it needs to be in a service? Because I, I don't think you know, there's no conservative church today, Bible-believing church today, that would not say, okay, the Bible needs to be in our service. But how much? Yeah. This is really timely, actually, because we made a commitment a couple of years ago in our church to begin reading um, good-sized portions, not just around the text that's going to be preached, at least the text that's being preached, uh, sometimes more than that, but from the other testament that's not being preached. Uh, the way that we do it at present is that we have a uh, usually a full chapter of the Old Testament that uh, to some extent covers the same theme as the sermon, and so we get the sense that that the fullness of Scripture is about this theme. It's not just this is a one-off, but God speaks most of the time in a lot more than just one place about a topic. But last night we had a, a, an elders meeting. One of my elders said, you know what, I appreciate the reading that you do, but um, sometimes when you choose a long chapter from the Old Testament, you end up reading it very quickly because you're sensitive to the time. And he says, that's good to be sensitive to the time. He said, but sometimes you can lose people if you pick too much to read. And so you feel rushed. And so I, I think it's, it's a balancing act. We've got to keep the, the conviction that people need to see the fullness of the word, but also make it uh, accessible. Uh, we've got to make it reasonable for people that they can pay attention for that period of time to what we're reading. Uh, I think we need to train people, too. Um, you know, some people would say a full chapter of each testament. That's what our director of worship talks about. Um, I, I think that's good, but I think that it's something you've got to work up to. It may be something that's even over a couple of generations because, uh, like in my church, I've got a lot of... Uh, first-generation Christians who are just beginning to get the idea that we ought to do family worship and that a chapter of Scripture is something that you and your kids would get used to because you do it around the table. But they're just beginning to get that. Uh, but when you've got a couple of generations where that's happened and new people that are coming in, that's the way they're being trained, that's what they're used to in the church, then it's a little bit easier. Yeah, when we're coming from a, a media generation, people who've not... Uh, known the Lord, not grown up in a family with family worship, it is. It can be a little difficult to sit down and hear the word, but that's no reason not to do it. And we often make that excuse that, well, my people aren't used to that. Well, so train them in that direction. Now, Matt, what you're suggesting then, or what you do, and we do some, we do something similar, is that if you're preaching from the New Testament then what you do is you find a similar similar thematic passage from the Old Testament, and you have, at one point, an Old Testament reading, and then, I would presume, just prior to the sermon, you have the New Testament reading. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Uh, right now, I'm in Mark chapter 4, and uh, two weeks ago, uh, on Palm Sunday, I talked about why Jesus switched in his ministry um, to parables. 
And uh, for an Old Testament reading, we took the passage from Isaiah where um, God talks about planting a vineyard and tending it, putting up the wall. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Um, it may be Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah 5. It's Isaiah 5. And he you know, digs the trench and he puts up the wall and he tends them and prunes them and they don't bear any fruit. And that is an absolute parallel, just as much as Jesus' ministry is a parallel of Isaiah 6. What's happened prior to Jesus' ministry before him turning to parables is, the, is, the, is Isaiah 5. And that he tends this whole garden, but it doesn't bear fruit. And that's why Jesus turns to parables. And that's a way I think that can, that can strengthen people's understanding of what we're trying to preach when they see, oh, this, is, this isn't a theme that's just unique to this one thing, but this is the way that God's been working. This is a mode of God's working. So that's, the way, that's one way to put it together, I think. Yeah, we, we did something uh, similar. Another example is this Sunday we were, uh, I preached on the resurrection when the two Marys come to the tomb and Jesus is risen from the dead. And our Old Testament passage was Ezekiel 37, which is dry bones coming together and receiving new life. It's, it's the resurrection in the Old Testament. Right. It's this, this image of uh, dead people receiving new life and being raised up. Uh, this, this raises a question. It's a, it's a tricky question. Uh, but when we come to a service and we say, you know what, that, that church reads the Bible too much. Uh, what, how is the scripture reading worship? And how is it not worship? Because people come and they say, I want to worship God. I don't want to sit and listen to the Bible being read. Is that a, is that a false assumption they're making? I, I think that it is. And it goes back to a little bit of what we said in the first question, which is, you know, what is it that we, what is it that the experience that we want for people? Change that. What's the experience God wants for them in worship? What's he after? Because if we're not lined up with that, what's the point? What we read in the scriptures, what he's after is their hearts. The hearts, Lord willing, that the Holy Spirit lives in, and the Holy Spirit takes that word that he's inspired and applies it to the heart. So the submissive sitting under the word and hearing it as though God were speaking, present, that as is, it's read, that that's is worship. It's to, it's to place myself under the word and say, God, speak to me. I, I think that that's, that's what we want people to get. It's absolutely worship. Hugh Zolifant Old, uh, I have a quote here from him. He says, the preaching and the hearing of the word of God is in the last analysis worship Worship in its most profound sense. I think this is what you were getting at, Matt, and saying this is listening to God speaking. Uh, preaching is not an auxiliary activity to worship, he goes on. He says, nor is it some kind of preparation for worship, which one hopes will follow. To be sure, preaching, uh, some preaching is preparation, If we're particularly if we're preaching uh, on missions or catechetical preaching or penitential preaching, that is preaching at sin, uh, but at the same time, preaching is, he says, preaching is worship. Well, I'll tell you, in two ways, I think that that's important. One is that as a minister, as a pastor, as a preacher, um, and this is something that maybe this is John Piper, it wouldn't surprise me, do we take our role as we use our gifts in worship as worship? Can I worship and preach at the same time? I ought to be. It's my way of worshiping as I use the, the place that God has, has put me. I think the, the second point to that is that I think many times the way that modern people interpret worship is unless I'm saying something, I'm not worshiping. Hmm. And that's obviously it. We would never say something like that about prayer. Prayers, you know, what's the basic thing that we learned with Sean in our campus crusades? is communication with God. It's a two-way communication. God speaks to us through his word. We echo back to him in what we pray. So if we think that worship, again, is a, two, is a, uh, a two-way thing, that's the model we see in Isaiah 6 of worship, right? It's God speaks, we speak. God speaks, we speak. Then it is worship. Now, it's the same time of God speaking. Uh, but it, it is worship, and we've got to regain that. The hearing is worship that we can worship with all of our senses that we we worship with our mouth in the lord's supper we worship with our taste buds mm-hmm. and in the sermon we worship with our ears and our hearts obviously our hearts and our minds have to be have to be involved it's interesting that even the um framers of the confession recognized 
that we're not to just uh, just throw the word out there and just uh, not consider where people are at. They, they says this in the uh, another place we mentioned the Directory of Public Worship. Um, often, if you're not familiar with the Westminster Directory of Public Worship, it's often available with the confession in a, in a single volume that has the Westminster Confession, the larger and shorter catechism, and then the uh, supplementary documents, which include the Directory for Public Worship. But it says this, it says, How large a portion shall be read at once is left to the wisdom of the minister. But it is convenient that ordinarily... One chapter of each testament be read at every meeting, and sometimes more, where the chapters be short or the coherence of the matter requires it. So you see, even the, even the Westminster divines understood, you know, you don't want, to, don't want to give people more than they can comprehend, but you don't want to give them t- so little that it's not doing any good. Uh, it goes on, it says, it's requisite that all the canonical books be read over in order that the people may be better acquainted with the whole body of the scriptures, and ordinarily, where the reading in either testament ends on one Lord's Day, it is to begin on the next. Now, this is uh, classically, this is called Lectio Continua, uh, this continual reading of the scriptures. Now, Matt, you said you tried to base that on theme. I do the same thing. Uh, why is that? Can, can we do both? I think so. In retrospect, uh, as I've been preaching in Mark, it is, and it, this wasn't intentional, uh, and it, perhaps if I had more foresight, I would have done it differently, but almost every passage that I preached in Mark, we've read something out of Isaiah, because they're so parallel. Um, not that they're direct prophecies like you're in Matthew, but the themes are so parallel in so many ways between what Isaiah is doing and what Jesus is, is doing in his public ministry that it probably would have been wise. I could have done something very similar just by reading through Isaiah. Uh, I'm, I see the wisdom of reading through whole books that are even unrelated to the sermon uh, text, and I, I think I could be convinced of that. I think personally for me, I, I like reading from the other Testament, but I like it linked thematically somehow. Um, and so even if it was just you're going to preach Mark and Isaiah has a lot of links with Mark and you decided for that time to read through Isaiah from start to finish, not necessarily picking up this chapter this week or this chapter next week, you know, I think that could be fine as well. I think also, uh, and this is kind of getting on to the next question, but I think they have to be connected to one another. You don't want to give the impression that those the primary use, well, the only use of the scripture is is the reading aspect. If that's all you've got, then you're going to end up needing big chunks. But if you're singing it, especially singing the Psalms, doing it responsively, portions of scriptures responsively, again, you can use the Psalms, you can use lots of stuff from the New Testament and other books on that. So if you've got lots of portions of the scriptures in the service, there's no, there's not a necessity to read 50 verses. But you'll have 50 verses in the service, but those verses will be spread out through various parts of it, and people will be getting scripture over and over and over again. And I think one essential way to get back to the scriptures being a part of the worship service is is renewed psalm singing. Make it central, central to the worship service that psalm singing is there. And it doesn't have to just be psalms, but you're singing God's word, and obviously, again, just like there's a difference between hearing and reading, there's a difference between singing and hearing. And singing the word implants it in your mind stronger, and you'll learn those things. So I think if you take a real broad view of including the scriptures in the worship service and don't just think on the narrow reading of it, um, you want to think those things through, but think in a broad sense about the different portions of the worship service and how the scripture can be included in those portions. You're not pushed into a hole where you have to have a whole lot uh, you can have shorter portions and still get a lot of scripture in the worship service. Doug Kelly says we need to, he describes the worship service this way. He says we need to read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and even view the sacraments as visible Bible. Uh, and, and I think you mentioned this is going on in the next question. I think that that is really key is that we need to see that all we're doing in the worship service has to be founded on the scriptures. Uh, you think about that. What, what do we have in our worship service? A call to worship, uh, often taken from the Psalms. Psalms provide so many excellent calls to worship. God saying, come in here and, and worship me. Um, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Confession of sin. 
You know, how often does the Bible talk about confession of sin? All, all over the place. And see, this is this issue of, should we read the Bible through uh, continually alongside of the sermon, even if it's a different section? Well, honestly, the Bible's all about the same story. So no matter what you're reading, whether you're tying it thematically or you are reading a separate section from the Old Testament when you're preaching through a New Testament section, you are going to hit the same themes because the Bible is all about uh, those same themes. What are some of the other ways that you guys in your services do um, use the scriptures as part of the overall service? One thing that you could that I haven't really worked out but I've been thinking on is taking now we have we have the call to worship the call to confession, and then the proclamation of absolution. So those are the three main scriptural portions. You the benediction, but there's a few set portions for the benediction. But taking those first three and pull them all from the same book. In other words, pull, all, pull the call to worship, the call to confession, and the proclamation of absolution all from Colossians or all from Matthew or whatever. And then somebody's getting um, the same book in each section and kind of gives it a little more... Uh, uh, unity, and I haven't I haven't really worked that out a whole lot or thought it through anymore. Just kind of it's flitted about in my mind a bit, but that's one thing I thought about. Well, you can do that with the Psalms. So many of the Psalms contain all three of those elements in them. Exactly, and that's why you need to sing them as well. You yeah. can sing through them as well, even separating, sing a verse here and a verse there and a verse there, yeah. and break it up that way. I think that as I've taught and worship in my congregation and talk with people. Um, I've got one deacon who is just absolutely enthused about the concept that he he learned several years ago that giving is an act of worship. Uh, now, you know, Reformed people differ. Uh, seminary president that Sean and I had, Bob Godfrey, doesn't, is of the opinion that the, uh, the offering is not essential to worship. It's not that it's sinful to have it, but he doesn't feel that it's essential. Um, but if we choose to do it in a service, uh, and I think that it's appropriate, um, Tying it to the scriptures, helping people see that giving is an act of worship. We have a call to give freely in our church. There's no time when we ask people uh, to pull to pull out their wallets without reminding them that this is what God calls them to. Very frequently, the way that I'll pray in our, our uh, dedicating the offerings after they've been given um, is to talk about that this is a token of our full discipleship, that this is the peace of which we're committing the whole. And I think our people need to see that that act of, of, uh, of giving is worship, and we can help them do that by introducing it with Scripture. There's a book that's out of print, uh, Rob Rayburn's Come Let Us Worship. If you can get a copy of it, get a copy of uh, Libris or eBay or something. Uh, I think I got mine from half.com. Um, but he has in the back of that book... Uh, some appendixes that are worth the price of the book, and he has one on scriptures to be read at the offering, and we just cycle through that. And I've I've added another. I've written in the margins in my book a bunch of other verses, and we just cycle through those verses uh, real quickly. Just read a short little verse on giving as worship. We take the offering and we sing the doxology, and and that's how we do it. Peter, did you want to? Yeah, I was just going to say you mentioned uh, praying, and we've been praying through the Psalms, using the Psalms. And a good example of this is Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's prayer was motivated by the Scripture. And a lot of the older liturgies had the prayer after the sermon, the pastoral prayer, the long prayer. After <laughs> That's the what sermon. they called it. They called it the long prayer. They had that after the sermon because the prayer is a response to the Word, and it should be bathed in the Word. We were commenting on... One of the gentlemen who was praying at uh, this conference we were at, how he just he wasn't reading his prayer, but it was Derek Thomas, I believe. His his entire prayer was just scripture over and over, repeated here, there, pulling from all sorts of places. And Daniel nine is a good example that he read Jeremiah's prophecy about seventy years, and he prayed based on that prophecy, bathing his prayer and the covenantal promises of God all throughout the Old Testament. And a lot of times our prayers are so weak and insipid because they are so detached from the scriptures. We're praying about stuff that God really doesn't ask us to pray for. And uh, it makes it very weak. And uh, and I think we need to get back to that. And getting back to singing the Psalms and understanding the Psalms is a good start to praying correctly. We'll, we'll probably come back, if I can say one more thing. It, we'll probably come back in another one and talk about public praying. But, you, Peter, you just reminded me of something that, that I am uh, need to work on a lot more, which is my prayer that follows 
the sermon. Um, the same pastoral friend of ours that we've been talking about somewhat in the back here, Terry Johnson, talks about when he was a young believer that he was listening to a sermon by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a, a, really a very excellent preacher. And he was listening to it while I think he was painting a fence or something like that on a Walkman. This is years ago. And uh, the sermon was good, he said, but it was the prayer that got him. And I wonder if it has ever been the case that when I've led worship in my church, that a prayer was so heartfelt and... um, Spirit-inspired in the sense of he helps us groan when we don't know what to say, that I myself as the preacher and as the sinner was so broken over the text that anybody got more out of the prayer than the sermon. And that's a hard question. It's a question we need to ask. Well, you know, it used to be that ministers, when they were trained, were, were trained to pray. Now, that sounds kind of odd, but you, you go back, Matthew Henry... Many of you are familiar with Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. Matthew Henry also wrote a a fairly thick book called A Method for Prayer. And that was a handbook to train young ministers how to pray Hmm. and how to lead in public prayer. And that's that's definitely something that we need to to come back uh, to. I, I want to give us a quote from Calvin here. Calvin said in his Institutes that worship is to be that which God has established by himself. And what he meant by that is in his word. He said anything else should be rejected as not the command of God. Mm. So if we are not praying the Bible Mm. and preaching the Bible and reading the Bible and singing the Bible, then we're not worshiping. Mm. Which brings up an interesting issue is, is the hymns. How, how are we to be sure that we're singing the Bible? Mm. Well, you got to know the Psalms. There you go. I think that's where you start. You got to know the Psalms. I don't think you can go any other direction with it. I mean, if we had a book of the Bible that had 150 sermons in it, as pastors, we would devour those sermons and base our sermons around those sermons, structure our sermons, how those sermons were structured. And we have 150 Psalms of varying lengths, which tell us the length of a, of a hymn is not the most important thing. Um, of varying lengths and lengths, and these can teach us how we're supposed to sing. I think hymns that do not structure themselves upon the Psalms and upon things like Mary's Magnificat and Hannah's song and different other song, Moses's song and Exodus 15, the different songs in the Bible, the hymns that do not base their structure and their thought pattern upon those are are, are detached from the scriptures again. And that's why a lot of our hymns today and things are so weak. Not because of the length or even because of the tunes, although that's a different debate, but mainly because they're not scriptural. They're just not, they're not based in God's word. Well, and I, I, I like your comment about the length because you have some, you know, got Psalm 119 that w- all of us break up in our service and we don't sing the whole thing through. Um, but you even have in Revelation, is it four, uh, you know, a very short but extraordinarily profound song. You know, just to be singing and meditating about the being of God that he was and is and evermore will be, that's plenty for any of us to ponder in one song. Um, But I think that you're right. They've got to be scripture-rich. They've got to be on themes of scripture. Uh, It's not that they can't be self-expression. There's not a war between self-expression and being scriptural. But I think that the self-expression has to be within the context of scriptural themes, and that's where the Psalms help us. The Psalms are about, a lot of times they're a personal, even desperate self-expression, but they come back to being centered upon God, not being centered upon me and my feelings. What I may have even been, I think we're going back to the well here again with Terry Johnson. I can't remember where I read this, but he was saying that many of the great hymn writers, one of the reasons they were such good hymn writers is they grew up singing the Psalms. Isaac Watts, the Wesleys, guys like that, they grew up and they were steeped in the Psalms. And so when it came to writing hymns, it was natural to write them in the pattern that they had learned with the Psalms. And so I think that that can really inform uh, us as to why our hymnody and coarsity is so so weak today, because we aren't steeped in the scriptures. Well, Peter, you you raise a question as how are we judging our hymnody? Uh, is there, you know, who picks the hymns in your church? You know, is it, is it someone who's qualified to pick the hymns in your church? If you're going to introduce a new hymn 
does that and this is having, this is going to sound crazy to some people who are listening to this but do your elders approve any new hymns that you're going to sing or any new choruses or any new uh, any new psalms you know is the psalm text a good representation of the of the biblical text because even the psalter is not the exact words of the biblical psalms it's uh, created in uh, english metric uh, units. Now, some of our people might not be familiar. Some of the listeners may not be familiar with what a psalter is. So why don't you give us a, a working definition of that? Well, you're you're the, you're the one that's uh, you're the one that's going to the um, uh, to the psalm only uh, <laughs> seminary. <laughs> seminary yeah. um, a psalter is a generally metrical, uh, rhyming. Uh, that, translation of the psalms so that you can sing them. One of the ways you can get back closer, I think, to the biblical text in um, a difficult thing for us to do, but one way to do it is get back to chanting. Chanting the psalms. Because that way it doesn't have to rhyme as much and and, and doesn't have to flow like a modern hymn would have to flow. And therefore you can get back closer to the original text. It is a good point. Just because you're singing a translation of the psalm doesn't mean you're singing a good translation of the psalm. And, And does it just because someone plop the tune on a psalm doesn't mean it's the best tune. I, I can't remember which one I was looking at, but we're trying to learn a psalm in family worship, and I was looking through the tunes I knew, and there was a really somber tune to one of the later psalms. And if you know the later psalms, they're just overflowing with joy and praise the Lord and all this sort of stuff. And so I chose not to learn that one because the tune did not fit. So all those things need to be evaluated by theologically, biblically trained men, elders, whoever that is at your church, so that you're not just throwing something out there that is poor musically, translation-wise, or even when it comes to hymns perilously close to heresy in certain cases. Well, there's obviously a lot more that we could uh, uh, say with regard to preaching, with regard to reading of the scriptures, with regard to how the scriptures impact everything that we do in worship. Uh, But we did promise that we would talk a bit about the gospel of Judas. Um, This is this new gospel that has just suddenly come to light. And so why don't we, uh, we're going to run a little longer here today. and Let's go ahead and uh, talk about the uh, gospel of Judas um, if you've not seen the Gospel of Judas, uh, which is probably a good thing if you have not seen the Gospel of Judas, uh, what the Gospel of Judas is, is a, a Gnostic document coming from the a Gnostic heresy that was long ago. I don't know, Matt, do you have a date on this one, the Gnostics? Well, the Gospel of Judas was uh, it, it, Irenaeus in about 180 wrote against it. So it was extant at that point. Uh, and it was a, a gospel competing for the attention of the church at that time. Um, and so it uh, more than likely, they don't have the copy that's just most recently been restored and uh, by the National Geographic Society released. It's dated, the carbon dating of it, if you can believe carbon dating, which is probably one of the dating methods with less problems in it. Um, they're saying that the, the copy that they have of this Gospel of Judas, which was translated into Coptic, uh, probably dates from somewhere in the 3rd or 4th, 4th uh, or 5th century, somewhere in there. So it's a fairly early uh, you know, Egyptian yeah, it, papyrus. It's an yes. early document. It's an early document. But it's that. also a heretical document, and it was, it was uh, uh, which, uh, do you know which council it was that um, denied, the, denied the Gnostic heresy? I don't know. You know, different ones in affirming the, the true nature of Christ, um, you know, were also, you know, when you affirm something, you deny others, sometimes not as uh, overtly. But you spend your time affirming instead of instead of refusing. So I'm not sure that this particular heresy was refused in, in any particular council. But certainly, certainly the early church councils that dealt with um, the nature of Christ uh, is certainly dealing with that. Because obviously the the picture of Christ that you get in the Gospel of Judas is radically different than the picture of Christ you get in the canonical Gospels. There's a great a great article uh, from the New Yorker by a fellow named Adam Gopnik. And uh, he writes this, he says, Orthodox Christians will point out correctly that there is no new challenge to the church in the Judas gospel, uh, much less a crisis of faith. Uh, so as you're hearing about this, Christians, don't, don't be scared. Uh, this is an ancient, uh, Gopnik goes on, he says, this is an ancient heresy dealt with firmly, not to say brutally, throughout church history. <laughs> 
the finding of the new gospel, though obviously remarkable, is a bit of textual history. No more challenges the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George as uh, King George would be a, defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of American democracy. Uh, so, in other words, th- there's nothing to be scared about this, uh, but we live in a culture that is very spiritual. Uh, we live in a, in a postmodern culture. We live in a neo-spirituality, and that new spirituality does not want anything to do with the real Gospels. They like these new ones. In fact, Peter, you had a good point about that. We were talking earlier. What was your point about... I was just saying that... If the gospel of Judas is true, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all liars. And you have to come to grips with this. And, and I don't know, maybe in our postmodern age, people are like, well, you know what? We can have John over here saying this, and Matthew saying this, and the gospel of Judas saying this, and it really doesn't matter. But it's got A and B. A is not B, as Francis Cheshire would say. And so if the gospel of Judas is correct, which clearly it is not, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all liars. And you have to, you have to deal with that. With the, with the consequences of that. And I, I, another thing, just to add to this, it is interesting that this whole thing was released on prior to not just the Da Vinci Code, but prior to Na- National Geographic coming out with a special. So you kind of wonder, is this really about a new finding, or is this just about getting good advertising for the show? And sometimes I really wonder. Uh, well, I, t- I took in the National Geographic show a couple nights ago. One of my deacons recorded it for me. And... Um, I think my wife was ready to kill me by the time I got done because I kept stopping it and, and uh, talking, talking back to the TV. But interestingly, to your point about whether we can lay them side by side, um, Elaine Pagels, you know, who is, um, uh, is, thinks that the Gnostic Gospels are extraordinarily important. She's a liberal scholar at Princeton. Um, and uh, she said that these are not uh, opposed to each other, but they're complementary. Now, the only world that they're complementary in... <laughs> <laughs> the only world that they're complementary, and this is very important for people that are listening, is you have to remember that the pagan mindset is that all is one. And so everything can be joined together because in reality they are, and appearances are deceiving. There isn't to the pagan a distinction between the creator and the creature. There is not a need for external revelation that we might know God or ourselves. And so to them, harmonizing things is of utmost importance because all is one. And so if we can't put it together, it's our own failure because they already believe at the beginning that they must be because all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are to a pagan is one person's religious experience. The Gospel of Judas is another person's religious experience. And everybody's religious experience should have equal footing. And so a a pagan chooses to live in inconsistency rather than to seek out the truth. Absolutely. There, there's less kind words than inconsistency with you, Sean. Come on, bust something out on us. <laughs> you know, you know it's funny. We, we were laughing here because you just have to read the thing. Yes. Okay, I, I've got a, I've got a uh, quote here, um, also from Gopnik. He, he summarizes it, and he summarizes it this way. Um, and you, you tell me, if you know anything of the scripture, you tell me if this jives with Mac, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in the Gospel of Judas... Jesus laughs. Why are you laughing at us? The nettled disciples ask. And Jesus says that he is laughing not at them, but at their strange idea of pleasing their God. He says one of the unnerving things about this new gospel is that Jesus, who never laughs in the canonic gospels, is constantly laughing in this one. And it's obviously one of those sardonic, significant, how little you know laughs, like the laugh of the ruler in a dubious planet on Star Trek. (laughs) He says the disciples are furious at Jesus' condescension, except for Judas, who thinks he knows what the laughter signifies. And he turns to Jesus and he says, I know who you are and where you have come from, Judas says. You are from the immortal realm of Barbello. So, you know, you, you asked earlier, you know, what world can these Gospels look? Well, obviously the world of Barbello. Okay, apparently startled by his insight. I'll explain Barbello in a second. Apparently startled by his insight, Jesus tells Judas, Step away from the others, and I shall tell you the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, right there, 
Judas is made the hero. Mm-hmm. And that is the key. My sin's okay. The traitor is the good guy. You, you see where this is going. Well, Barbello, just really briefly, is the Gnostic higher realm. It's this name for the celestial mother that gave birth uh, to all things. Uh, she is the one who, out of which we have all generated this realm of Barbello. And notice that's not a creator outside of creation, but a higher being from which we emanate it. Now, that's, we, theologically, that's hard to. It may be hard for you to get. You can read Peter Jones' Gnostic Empire Strikes Back is probably the best for understanding that concept of we're lower beings who can ascend up to divinity but we've emanated from this higher being, not a God outside of creation, because there's nothing outside. There's only one circle of life. Well, it's, it's the image of the sun and its rays, that we are sort of the last bit of the ray of the sun mm-hmm. somehow connected back to that celestial star. Uh, but, but as you can see, this is, this is all heresy. I had, I had a man in my congregation email me last week and said, can you help me understand why the early church didn't receive the gospel of Judas as a biblical book, as inspired by God? And I emailed him back, and I, um, M. Muller has a, a, a great commentary. If you're not familiar with his work, those of you who are listening, um, go to his website, albertmoller.com, sign up for his commentary, his daily links from his radio show. The guy's unbelievable, but he has a great commentary on the Gospel of Judas. It's very, very helpful. And I just forwarded it to this one man in my congregation, and I said the reason, very simply, that the Gospel of Judas was not received by the early church is they knew what the biblical worldview was, and they instantly recognized that the gospel of Judas did not reflect a biblical worldview. That's a key point to apologetics. I mean, often people think, you know, I can't be an apologist unless I learn about all these other different worldviews. Well, the fact is, if you know the word of God, if you know the truth, the error is immediately apparent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that uh, that closes our time for today. Uh, we thank you for joining with us. Uh, we encourage you to go to uh, both the website, OrdinaryMeans.com, as well as over to the blog, which is OrdinaryMeans.blogspot.com. Uh, leave your questions there. Leave your comments. Uh, we love hearing from you. We love responding to you. We are planning uh, here in the future to do another question and answer uh, podcast. Uh, But until the next time, may God richly bless you as you pursue His ordinary means.